My dad died. I miss my friends because of... I don't know how to tell my friends that. I want to help my friends. I don't know how. The pandemic has left me feeling very lonely. How can I best support students in my classroom? The morning meeting is meant to be a place to let you know that you are not alone. We can get through this together. So join us. Listen, learn, share your stories. This is the morning meeting. Good morning, everyone. Thank you so much for joining us today as I speak with Lisa Gittleson, born into a family of social workers and social justice workers. She was privileged to grow up in an environment where everyone was able to do this kind of work. She started working in child welfare when she was just 15 years old at a summer sleepaway camp for children with behavioral special needs. After that, she knew she wanted to spend her career working in child welfare, and she's been very lucky and been able to do just that. She's worked privately as an attorney representing child welfare organizations. She's worked as an attorney for New York Children's Services, and she's worked in-house at a social service agency leading their foster care program. Currently, she works at the Council of Family and Child Caring Agencies, advocating for the child welfare organizations of New York. She believes deeply in the power of the family, in the possibility for better, and in change that brings better to the families that they serve. Please join me welcoming Lisa Gittleson. So Lisa, thanks so much for coming on the Morning Meeting Podcast. Thank you for having me. Oh, it's my pleasure. I'm excited to talk to you um, as we think about, you know, college students and loss, and they experience so many different kinds of losses. I was really excited to talk to you about foster children and young adults. Um, Mostly, I was thinking they're aging out of the foster care system, although I think they might not age out right away at 18. But I'd love to just hear a little bit about maybe what you do and the work that you're doing with foster care. And and then we could talk a bit about what it's like for those students as they head to college. Right. So I work at the Council of Family and Child Caring Agencies, We are the umbrella organization of membership for all New York State child welfare agencies. Um, And we do representation of all different kinds for them, advocacy work, best practices. We collect information. We get together for different topics to learn together and to better the work that we do. So foster care is one of those um, parts of child welfare that we do work on. And certainly we do a lot of work with our older youth as they're aging out of care. So we don't do any of the direct work. We work with all of the people that do the direct work. Okay. So do kids age out at 18 or are you able to kind of hold on to them through college? Sure. Kids in New York State may stay in care until 21. In New York City, it is pretty much the rule that kids will stay in care until they're 21, unless there's a really um, very vivid reason why they're ready to leave at 18 or 19 or 20. Um, Past 21 is also very feasible and happens quite often. Nobody is to be discharged from foster care without permanent housing. And there are certainly a lot of situations where youth at 21 do not have permanent housing, so they will remain in care until they get that permanent housing. Additionally, if you are in college, you will also remain in care until you finish college. There has to be some kind of limit to how long this goes on. There are certainly kids who stay in care way past 21, but there is also kind of a review every year to see what's going on and is everybody doing all the things they need to do to appropriately work to get to an independent place so that they can no longer be in foster care. 
And as long as people are working towards that, generally you will stay in foster care until the time has come for you to leave. Wow. That's so interesting. I, I, you know, had no idea. You just, I, I always assumed that at 18 they're done. Um, So I'd love to talk about what's available before we even get to that though. Let's just go back. Can you talk about some of the issues that some kids in foster care are dealing with? You know, um, some of the losses. Sure. Um, What are some of the things that, you know, that you're seeing? Sure. Um, So for the youth in care, and I'm calling anybody who's in care kind of youth, even the older, young adults as well. Mm -hmm. Um, There's something that led to them coming into care. So whether that was some kind of acute incident that was very, very serious that led them to come into care or some kind of long, maybe low simmering challenge that led them to come into care. There was trauma that led to them coming into care. Again, it could have been something very acute or something that happened for a longer time at a lower level, but there was trauma that led to their removal from their parents. Um, And then there's the removal from their parents. The removal from your home of origin is without question, other than the death of your parents, the most traumatic kind of incident that could happen to any youth. So kids who come into care have already come in with a significant amount of trauma. It's something that we as a profession have really focused on much more intently, I would say, in the last 10 years or so. It used to be something that we were not as cognizant of, didn't know as much about what to do with it. There's a lot of evaluation now, specifically with regard to trauma and evidence-based practices to address the trauma of the youth that come into care. Um, And then there's also other kinds of trauma, like small traumas, big traumas. Um, You know, you have a learning disability. That's a trauma of some kind. You have to be in care separate from a sibling for some reason. That could be very traumatic. That doesn't happen very often, but it can happen. Um, You watch something terrible happen to one of your parents. That's a trauma of different kinds. So the kids in care often have very high levels of trauma. And the most important thing when they come into care is that they know that they're safe and that we're working to get them to return to their parents and to do that safely and to address the traumas that surround all of the removal and the successful return home. I also wonder about actually being in foster care. Um, I'm assuming that I get to hear about, because, you know, just from the media, some of the horror stories that happen. I assume that we hear about them because they're rare. Um, But what is a typical child in foster care? Do they go from home to home like we hear about? Or do they typically stay with one family? Is it typically a family member? Or is it people that they don't know? And how does that whole thing work? So the number one goal when a youth is identified as somebody who needs care is to find a family member who can care for them. And I think one of the great things New York does is that we have really broadened what the definition of family is. And we will often kind of refer to this as fictive kin. Fictive kin might be that neighbor that you knew really well and went over there after school all the time, or your family's good friend who you often celebrated holidays with, or a clergy person who you knew well, or anybody in your life who for some reason you had a very close relationship can possibly be considered as kind of a fictive kin for you, depending on how close they are. But the first thing we'll look at is biological family. So we really need to look at both, and I want to really emphasize this because it's one of the things we've become much better at, but it's a challenge. We need to look at both the mother's family and the father's family. Now, we almost always know who the mother's family is. Usually kids come into care and we know who their mom is. Sometimes Mm -hmm. we don't know who their dad is. We mostly do, but sometimes we don't. 
And there's also always the possibility that a youth has two moms and two dads. And we need to always be very cognizant of who the constellation is around a youth so that we're looking at all the possible family members. We're not leaving out one side of the family that might possibly be able to care for the child. So the agencies are trained very, very well at doing this kind of identification and making determinations about who might be in the family available. Even if they're not available as a resource, they may be a visiting resource, and it's still good if they'd like to be available to visit. And then if there's not a biological resource, then we start to look at fictive kin, people in the child's constellation that might be willing to care for their child. I kind of always think about some of my kids' friends when they were little growing up, and if something terrible had happened to one of their parents, would I would take one of these kids in? I hope that I would have. You know, I hope that I would have thought, well, this is a kid who feels safe with me and knows me. Um, so there's those kinds of possibilities as well. If all of those fail, then you will be looking at general foster parent population for a youth to enter. Um, again, we have gotten our numbers of moves from foster home to foster home down significantly. It's something that all of the different foster care agencies are very aware is a trauma, and we don't want to do that to our youth. Um, and there's a lot more support for foster parents so that you see less movement. And there's more ability to get services for both foster parents and for youth so that you hope you can maintain a placement in a way that's most healthy for a youth. Excellent. It's nice to hear because certainly we, we frequently hear, you know, just the bad things that happen, but clearly it's such a needed service and uh, good to know that there's really good things happening, stability in their lives. I just want to say one other thing, which I think is so important, which is that New York City probably has one of the most progressive and well-funded prevention systems in the country. And prevention is the service that you try to put in before you get to foster care. So you're preventing a placement into foster care. Mm -hmm. And the numbers in New York City of children in care have gone down so significantly over the years. And many of us believe that this is in large part also due to our successful prevention work. And it is much better if you can maintain a child in their home of origin with services than to remove the child and try to get them back to that home. So that's also another big focus of how we've, I think, done better at identifying really the youth that really need foster care. Um, we're not getting too big of a net. You know, we are really only working with families that really need this service. So I think that's something we're pretty proud of in New York. It's awesome. So let's just talk a little bit about... Um high school seniors and foster care. I know because I have, you know, a high school senior and one in college, how difficult the process is to apply to college, all the finances, just like thinking about like buying bedding and um, notebooks and things. Who does that for kids when they're in the system? So there's definitely more than one possibility of how that happens. So I'm going to just talk a little bit about the kind of realm of what could happen. Um, all youth that are seniors in high school in New York City right now have what's called a Fair Futures coach. And that coach is assigned to them to look at the ways to best move them along to independence and what their life will look like on the other side of foster care. So that coach is extraordinarily well-trained in educational options um, and that doesn't, like, you know, that includes the whole gamut of educational options from, you know, the kid who goes to Harvard to the kid who's going to vocational school, how you're going to make that work economically, um, what kind of living op options they have when there's a school break, where are they going to go? You know, we don't want them staying at dorms by themselves. Um, 
So the Fair Futures Coach, among many other responsibilities that a Fair Futures Coach has, is to look at the educational needs of a youth and make sure that those needs are being met. Mm-hmm. In addition to this, most agencies also have um, staff that are educational specialists that won't just be working with the high school student. They work with all different age youth and assist them with their education. Um, every youth has a case planner that works with them that has also been trained in educational um, needs and how to best make sure a kid is getting all the different services that they need. There's also a lot of funding for the youth that are going off to college. Um, there's stipends that they receive in order to first furnish their dorms. And then there's stipends that the youth get for actually being at school to make sure that their situation is as normalized as is possible. We don't want kids going to college and their friends going out to dinner and the movies and them saying, I don't have that kind of money. There should be no shame about being in foster care. And that includes that you should have the same options and opportunities as every other kid in college. So Mm -hmm. there is um, a very well-funded program for the kids who go to college. There are people who work with them to work on budgeting because certainly at 18, if you gave me a big pot of money, I might not have done so well with it. Um, And so there's the educational specialist who helps you get to college, um, the Fair Futures coach who helps you get to college, your case planner who helps you get to college. And then once at college, there's a whole nother kind of wraparound set of services that exist as well. Um, But they also, I'm sorry, they do do the finances, which is Mm -hmm. huge. Like I also have a youth in I have my own child in college. Mm -hmm. I have a child in high school. The finances are extraordinarily complicated to figure out. It's a sophisticated system. And these people are trained to also help um, the youth apply for these uh, for financial aid if needed and also for different types of scholarships and to just do all the paperwork, which the paperwork in and of itself and the applications is overwhelming. Absolutely. That's amazing. All of the financial support that's available. And um, I hope you know, I hope in in real life it works the way that it's supposed to. So most of these kids are really feeling the um, the safety net that should be there. So, I mean, I can tell you for the kids that are in, we have one thing in New York City called the CUNY Dorm Project, which I can describe a little bit more. But the kids in the CUNY Dorm Project get an initial grant to furnish their um, rooms. I honestly don't remember what it is at this moment, and I was trying to find it. It's very generous. I, When I was still doing more direct work prior to the job that I'm at presently, mm-hmm. I was really impressed with what we could get for the kids for the money that was given for the initial um, stipend. And thereafter, they get uh, just about $31 a day stipend. And that's on top of their meal plan, paying for all of their education, paying for tutoring, uh, paying for all their books, for paying for all their room and board. So that's just money. That's like you're spending money. So $31-ish right. a day is an okay amount of money when everything else is being paid for. Yeah, that's actually probably more than my kids are spending um, right. at college. Right. So that's really good. What about other supports, emotional support? So, you know, talk about trauma. They've probably been getting some kind of emotional support throughout their lives. Then, like many kids, you go to college and you're in a different place, and now those supports sort of disappear So how do we make sure that those kids are getting the right emotional support? So certainly for the kids that go to school in New York City, they will continue on with seeing any supports that they were seeing and all of their services will continue. Now, also being honest, like when you're a college student, sometimes you're not as interested in continuing in these and we can't force a youth to do it, but we will make it as easy as possible. I would also just say one of the silver linings of COVID is we have really found that our older youth are 
much more likely to engage in therapeutic services through telehealth than they were mm-hmm. to have to go into an office. You know, if you think about like, if you're going to college in Queens and your therapist is in the Bronx, to get there is going to take you an hour and a half on the subway. You're going to be there for 45 minutes, and then an hour and a half commute. Or you could get on your laptop and be there in 30 seconds and be done at the time it's done. So I think certainly there's going to be a lot of telehealth that continues post-COVID, especially for our college youth and or for our youth that go away to school and want to continue with somebody that they've already built a relationship. They won't have to have a new service provider or wherever they end up going to school. Right. Um, So for the kids who go away to college who are not in New York City, Again, we work with them to make sure that all their services are in place, wherever it is they're going to be. Every college that I'm aware of has some kind of counseling center, even if it's you know not huge. There's some availability. Um, they continue to work with their Fair Futures coach. They continue to work with their case planner. And they will still have a foster family assigned to them, even though they're not living with them, with the understanding that that foster family is there to support them, just like you know, when I went to college and I called my parents during the week and just said, like, I'm having a meltdown. I don't know how to do this or do that. That's what they're there for. Um, and you go home to those people also like at your Thanksgiving break or your Christmas break or your summer break. Uh, we also often find mentors for the youth in the type of work that they want to pursue so that they also have that, um, and for the kids that stay in the city and go to one of New York city's CUNY programs, We have the CUNY Dorm Project, which I had mentioned earlier. The CUNY Dorm Project is available for every youth who goes to any CUNY at all, um, even if the CUNY they go to doesn't have housing. So if I go to CUNY and I'm in foster care, I have guaranteed housing if I make it into the CUNY Dorm Project. There's so many slots. Um, I might not be living on the campus that I go to, but I will have a dorm. I will have my meal plan paid for. I will have all of my books paid for, all of my room paid for. all of my tuition paid for, there will be additional counselors that work that have been identified as part of the CUNY dorm project to work specifically with our youth and to know the special needs that they have. So in addition to the regular dorm, maybe residential advisor, you're going to have your special CUNY dorm advisor. Um, And you really do get a tremendous amount of wraparound support to make sure that you're going to make it through the college years. The college years are hard for everybody. For Mm -hmm. our youth, without question, they are even harder. And one of the things, you know, I think maybe, you know, 15 years ago, we started getting really great at getting kids into all the right colleges. It wasn't just like you're going to the college that's nearest to you. We started really thinking about what's the right college for you. But we still were often challenged with keeping kids in college. I would say, you know, that's really changed in the last 10 years where we've gotten much more sophisticated about understanding what it means to keep a kid in college and what kinds of things we need to do to make them successful. So I know I'm making this all sound really rosy. I don't want to make it sound like it's perfect. Um, There's definitely challenges with all of this. And again, you know, one of those big challenges is that our youth have been under some of the most, you know, traumatic kind of living conditions that, you know, you can imagine or can't imagine. And to succeed after living with this kind of drama is a very big, real thing to do. And we always need to remember to meet our youth where they are, make sure that we're really responding to where they are. And to make sure that we're providing them the support that's going to get them through to where they need to be. Hmm. You know, just thinking about, uh, you know, when you go to college and you get a roommate and you don't know, you don't know your roommate, that's a struggle for a lot of kids. First of all, like many of whom have never had to share a room before. And now you've got two people living together who may come from very different backgrounds. And one likes the room neat. One doesn't care about that kind of stuff. 
And when you're coming from, you know, potentially chaotic backgrounds, I wonder if that's like an issue that comes up a lot for kids who have come from foster care. I think, you know, it comes up as much as it does for any other kid. I don't think it's coming up more or less, but I think, you know, you're right. You do have those challenges. You have all the challenges every kid has when they go to college. You get a pot of money all of a sudden. That's your site. We don't give the kids $31 a day. They get it as, you know, a lump sum. I'm not for the semester, but like all of a sudden you have this money. You know, are you budgeting really well? Are you doing something that like any teenager would do? Um, because you have a pot of money all of a sudden. When you go to the dining hall, are you making healthy choices what to eat? Are you eating from the cereal bar every day? Um, mm-hmm. You know, are you just eating dessert all day or are you eating vegetables also? And, you know, those are some of the things that we really think about a lot and talk with our kids as we try to prepare them for what does it mean to live as a young adult in a much more free environment than a home-based setting. Right. And for some of these, I mean, obviously, hopefully you're able to place them in a very good, healthy foster care family, but some of them may have come from environments where they didn't eat vegetables or, uh, you know, didn't know about cleaning the rooms or I don't know. I don't want to be stereotypical. Right. Like every family out there, there's all different possibilities and you come into, you know, you go to college and you're with a whole bunch of people that, you know, you didn't know before and you don't know how they live. And it can definitely be challenging like it could for certainly every youth without question. There's like this balance that we really try to work between supporting a youth and not suffocating them, right? Because, and also it's not just the suffocating, but you want to kind of get them ready to to be ready to um, make the next move to live on their own. So you don't want to take care of every single problem for them. You want to encourage them to figure out how to also problem solve on their own. You want to give them the tools so they learn to do that. You don't want to let you know big failures happen, but you also need to know when you need to let them make their own decisions, even if it might not be the perfect decision, because otherwise they won't learn how to care for themselves and to you know really be able to leave the, leave the situation. And that's, you know, you're right. That's part of college. I think we expect our all of our children to make mistakes so that they can learn from them. And hopefully I they're just... I was perfect in college, Mandy. Oh. I made every great decision. <laughs> I never did anything that was mistaken. But, you know, I want to make that's sure... That's so funny because so did I. Right. So I think maybe we're like the only two people right. out there. <laughs> um, no, like, you know, I think, you know, you kind of watch your kids... Um, and I mean, the kids that we care for in the foster care system, and you want to like, you know, let them make some decisions on their own, even when they're not the decisions you would make, as long as they're mostly safe decisions and um, hope that, you know, you can help them see why these kinds of decisions are good and not good and, and all yeah. of the normal things you would do to make sure a child is ready to be on their own. This episode is brought to you by Inner Harbor, providing grief support to students and those that support them. Find us at www.inner-harbor.org. So I'm also just wondering about communicating. You know, I would love to say that there is no shame or stigma attached to being in the foster care system, but I assume that there is. And how do you prepare kids or what have you heard from kids who have gone away to college about how to talk to people about like, who do you live with? Where's your mom? You know, your background. Um, And how do you, how do you get kids to talk about that? That's a great question. And I think it's something we start probably younger, even than you might imagine talking with kids, because we really do want our kids to own their story so that they both feel that 
hopefully they're not ashamed by their story or feel that there's any shame associated with their story. You know, I say it all the time. Uh, nobody asked to come into foster care, but it is not shameful in any way to be in foster care. You have done nothing that has led to you coming into foster care. Um, that being said, for some kids, it feels very private. And we also spend a lot of time talking about it's your story. So you don't have to give it all away. And what can you tell people if you choose not to share this whole story without necessarily lying? But how do you protect yourself? Keep what you want private. I mean, we all have things about ourselves that we keep private and don't share. And we've learned over time how to negotiate that in different situations. For our kids, there's a much heavier burden to do that. But we do spend time talking with youth about what does it mean to have this story, to own your story, and to decide who you share it with and how much you share about it. I just wanted to add one thing because I I felt like I sounded a little bit judgmental. Kids in care have nothing to be ashamed of. I also truly deeply believe that parents don't either. So I didn't want to make it seem like the parents who have youth in care have something that they have done wrong or something to be ashamed of. We have a world that because of a tremendous amount of systemic racism and poverty and all kinds of systems that we have in place to keep certain power in power, have allowed this situation to be what it is. And we have families who are in foster care. Um, You know, no family, I believe, wakes up one morning and thinks to themselves, today's the day I'm going to do something that will be traumatic to my child. Um, This is just going to be something I'm interested in doing. Terrible, awful, traumatic things happen to our parents that lead them to often do traumatic things to their children as well. And our job as a child welfare system is to try to make changes in that and to do big picture systemic work so that we can change that. So sorry I got up on a little bit of a soapbox there, but I didn't want to make <laughs> it seem like I have any blame for anybody who's in this. Uh, no, I appreciate that. Um, and, you know, as you mentioned, New York's doing a pretty good job with the prevention, which, you know, is exactly how to keep children and families together rather than separating them, which is exactly, you're right, nobody wants that. But I think, you know, there was certainly a time when people didn't tell people if they were in foster care. They didn't tell people if they were adopted. It was one of those, you know, kind of dark secrets. People just would do their best to gloss over. At this point, it's really something that we address very head on. And if kids want to keep it private, there's nothing anybody's going to do to compromise that. Mm -hmm. But if they also want to share it, we work hard to talk to them about how to own their story and to share it as in a way that makes them feel safe and valued. It is part of who they are and they should feel valued for all the different things that they are. Absolutely. Our kids, you know, I, I also really think strongly, our kids have resiliency. All kids have a tremendous amount of resiliency. They all do. The kids in our system have resiliency. That's amazing. Um, the skills that they learn to make sure that they are okay are quite incredible. And I'm often really, you know, I don't want to be proud because they've had hard things happen that have made them strong, but that's often what's happened. Mm-hmm. Yeah. When you go through something, you do learn something. And, and part of our job in the system, too, is to make sure we point that out and show them what they, where they're stronger and what they've learned. Mm-hmm. It sounds, I know you said it's not perfect, but it's not perfect. it sounds so much better than what I thought. You know? right. I think, you know, the media would like it to seem as bad as it is. And again, I'm not saying there aren't the hard stuff. There, there's hard stories. There's hard times. This is not a business of, you know, lightness and everybody running around like it's fairy tales and unicorns. However. It is a business of people who take this work extraordinarily seriously, who do this work because they care about it deeply and passionately, and are doing incredible work to make families in New York safer and stronger. So what are some of the challenges? What would you say are things that, you know, if I can talk to you in 10 years, 
you'd like to say, you know, in the past 10 years, we've really got this part under control or. So I think really one of the biggest challenges that's been facing the work since the work began is the challenge of racism and how this plays on our families of color in New York City and New York State and the complete disparity about who's in care and who doesn't come into care. This is something that I am very, very proud that we as a system are doing our very best to address. And there's no easy fix to this. It's not going to, just because we're working on it, you know, I don't know that in 10 years it's going to be fixed. I hope in 10 years it's going to be much better than it is today. I do really believe that with a lot of intentionality and a lot of people dedicating themselves to make those changes and to figure out how we can change the way that we evaluate and look at the families in our system, we will have change. And that's one of the areas that I'm, I'm really proud that both my organization is working on extraordinarily hard and all the foster care agencies and the city are all really partnering, partnering to work on and address to the best of our abilities. That's fabulous. Um, one of the things that's starting to happen that's just of interest is normally when a family comes into a family comes to the attention of of um, ACS, the Administration for Children's Services, there's an mm-hmm. evaluation of what kinds of services they need. Um, one of the things that we're working on now is to do blind intakes so that we will take off all kinds of identifying information. So hopefully whatever implicit biases we all have will no longer be able to play into decisions that we make about what a family needs. So there ta- there, there's still a lot of complications with this, and it's going to take a little while to work it out. Right now in parts of New York State, they are doing completely blind intakes, and they have seen a tremendous difference in who's coming into care because of this. And I think that's so important that we've seen it work, and mm-hmm. we're working on implementing it throughout the state at this point. And I think that's one of the areas we can have really big change in. I hope to see that. So that's something in 10 years I hope to like, you know, see that we've really made a big change on. Mm-hmm. Well, let me know. Stay in touch. I will. (laughs) Um, So I want to just ask a little bit about you. This is hard work. Um, I'm sure that the pandemic has made it harder. Um, How are you taking care of you, your staff? What are people doing to stay healthy? Um, So I always feel extraordinarily lucky that this has been my whole career. Not this job that I'm at presently, but my whole career has been in child welfare. This is what I always wanted to do, like really from a pretty young age. And I feel really incredibly lucky every day that I get to do it. So for me, at some level, getting to do a job that I love is a tremendous thing in my life. You know, I, I often say, if you have the ability to do work you want to do and you're not doing it, for all different reasons, that's on you to make change. If you're lucky Mm -hmm. enough to have opportunities, then you should take advantage of those. And I've been lucky in my life that I've had opportunities. I've been very privileged to have, you know, a lot of things that I could choose from. And I really, this is so important to me. And every day that I get to do it, I'm really, really, look, I'm not saying every day is perfect. There's plenty of very hard days, (laughs) but I'm very happy that this is what I've been able to do with my career. And that most of my waking hours are at work, like most people, right? And I'm lucky to be spending a lot of my day doing things I feel passionately about. Uh, There's a lot of hard work. There's a lot of hard days. There's a lot of information that people that work in this field um, keep with them that we know about are happening in families throughout our city and state that most people don't think about or have to know about. And that's certainly hard and it can be heavy. There are families, I think, that you know, I'll never forget that I've worked with. There's families that will impact me always and have changed who I am and how I do the work. Um, There is an opportunity every day you feel like to do something a little bit better in the world. And that's a a great thing. 
the work is hard. And, you know, I often, I think, you know, I get through a lot of it with a lot of humor. It's not funny work actually, but if you don't have the ability to laugh at yourself and laugh at the mistakes you make and all of this, you really could, you know, burn out very, very quickly. Um, I do a lot of, not a lot. I say I do a lot. I try to do self-care. Um, mm-hmm. I know the things that calm me and make me feel more myself. And I try hard to make sure I'm doing some of those every day. Um, I remember at one point when I was in school, somebody said to me, every day you need to make sure you're doing at least 20 minutes of something that reminds you of who you are, or you can get really lost. And I definitely try to do that. Um, I work really hard with the people that I work with to be very, make sure they're very self-aware of where they are, of what they need, to talk about different opportunities for what self-care means. I think, you know, everybody thinks self-care is you light a candle and you take a bath. That's not what it is. For some people, that is. Right. It's mm-hmm. not what everybody does. And to have really be very intentional and focused on what works for you and calms you and makes you feel yourself again. Um, and doing a lot of check-ins. During the time of COVID, we're not physically together. I'm not with my team. Um, and to just really be intentionally checking in on people on a very regular basis and seeing where they are, trying to do little special things like my office. I, we started uh, every day a four o'clock Zoom where we're not talking about work. At four o'clock, it's voluntary, you don't have to, but it's our water cooler. At four o'clock, mm-hmm. you can come to the Zoom and just talk about what TV show you saw last night or what you're going to make for dinner or the kinds of things if we were all together in the office, every now and then we would stop in and talk to each other about these things. Yep. Um, we've done things, we've certainly done games together. Um, we had a luncheon together where we everybody was given a gift card so they could order a lunch and we would eat together. We've had some parties for people's birthdays online. Uh, but it's a lot of very like intentional, like making sure everybody knows we're here for each other still and doing a lot of extra work. Um, the work has been made much, much more complicated by COVID and much more scary. Not the right word, right? You can't say more scary. I don't know. It's been scary. Um, <laughs> working like this with COVID has been scary. We're sending staff out every single day into the field to work with families at risk. And that means that they are needing to get into public transportation. They're needing to go into homes that they wouldn't go into. They're needing to physically put themselves into situations that nobody, everybody else is choosing not to do at this time. And they're doing yeah. it. And there was never a break. You know, the Monday the city closed, the teams of people that work with families were out there still doing the work. There was not a moment for anybody to pause. I'm extraordinarily proud of what we have done in the face of this and how we have kept the work going and the dedication of the people that are in the front line. I'm not a frontline person. I, you know, I'm working mm-hmm. from home and I, I'm for the most part safe. Right. Um, the staff that go out there every day inspire me to no end. Um, I cannot thank them enough. Every time we meet, I tell them, and I mean this, they are literally heroes. Um, that they are going out and keeping families in New York City safe during the time of COVID is nothing less than heroic. Um, and we are trying very hard to be creative about what it means to take care of people during this time of COVID and make sure they feel safe. It was also extremely hard uh, in our residential settings because like any residential setting, COVID was more challenging to manage in, in residential settings. Um, we did have some staff who died pretty early on. A good friend of mine died pretty early on. These were very, very, very challenging um, times and scary in ways that we had never dealt with before. Uh, we also talked a lot about how normally if you're going to be working with trauma, you try to wait until the traumatic event is over to process it. 
and you don't process it with people who are going through the trauma with you. So like we all, like the trauma is not over, right? Every single person in the world right now is in this traumatic situation of COVID. We're trying to process it while it's still happening. And all the people you might possibly process it with are feeling just as scared as you are. Yep. So it's extraordinarily hard to make that all work. Um, Another thing that we did that I am also very proud of is we have a support group that's part of my organization for uh, all of New York State, for any staff that work in the child welfare arena who either had COVID or presently have COVID. And we were very intentional that it had to be one of those two. It was not just I'm generally, and there's really good reason to be generally scared of COVID. I'm not making light of that, but that this was an intentional group um, for people who either were in the midst of having COVID or had had COVID and still wanted to be processing it. And that everybody who was in this group um, had to, you know, we weren't checking. I wasn't asking for medical records, but right. that was what the assumption was. It still goes on today. All these months later, we still have people coming to it. It's still, there's still a need for it. And in the beginning, when I started running the um, group, it was quite, um, People felt very much like they wanted to be anonymous and private because back in late March and early April, COVID felt like a stigma, like people were never going to touch you again. If people Mm -hmm. knew about this, they would never see you again. So in the beginning, we were doing it. uh, Many people who joined were doing it anonymously. They wouldn't say who they were. The first meeting I held, I did by Zoom. And that was on me that I didn't realize people weren't going to want to show their faces. And everybody didn't have their camera on. And I was like, oh, now I'm understanding like this is not the right way to do this. Um, but people have come and shared and been very honest and, and open and vulnerable. And I, I know it's been really, really important. So that's another thing we've been doing to try to take care of staff is to be very intentional about having a group for people who had COVID or have it presently. So you could also ask other people like, I'm feeling this. Did you feel this? Or how long did it take to get over this? Or those kinds of things that have just right. been helpful to people. Mm-hmm. That's great. What a great service. It's just um, for people in New York? New York State, yeah. New York State, okay. Um, and the big joke of it is that I am running the program, and I'm, I think, the only person in the office, well, one of the only people in the office who's not a social worker. So I was, I was like, you all picked the wrong place. <laughs> not for all of you that I'm the one running this, because I'm not the expert on running a group. Um, and quite honestly, in the beginning, I contemplated having a therapist do it with me, and I talked to some of my colleagues who are our therapists. And in the end, both on my decision and also with input for them, we decided it really needed to be people with the lived experience. Um, I had COVID very early on. And because I had COVID, I felt like I could have these conversations in ways that were different, even as not as intentionally therapeutic as people who um, had never had COVID. So mm-hmm. it is kind of a joke that the lawyer in the office is running the support. <laughs> you know, you can, you can do another podcast with all the people who come to the support group and they'll tell you it's Absolutely. awful and the lawyer running it is awful. But um, <laughs> I doubt it. We've been doing it and it's been a good thing. So that's That's some of the self-care that we do. Mm -hmm. I think a lot Mm -hmm. of it too is just naming it, right? Like all the time, like every time I have a work group and I'm meeting with people, we very intentionally say what's happening now is beyond what any of us ever thought we were doing. And it's really, really, really so hard. And look at what you're doing. And every day I want you to remember that in the face of what is going on, you continue to go out and really make the place places that you work safer for everybody. Yep. Um, in the beginning of COVID, just one last thing I will say, when we were still doing the seven o'clock cheering, 
um, you know, in the whole city. And I guess the whole yep. state was doing the seven o'clock cheering. I was always screaming, child welfare heroes are my heroes. And not that everybody else is. And I think all the doctors and medical teams, right. all <laughs> firefighters, police officers, everybody, MGs are all heroes. But I wanted to make sure we were also remembering that our child welfare heroes who are working through this were heroes too. Yes, they are. I hope they hear this and recognize that as well. Um, and I, I really should say too, like our kids who are resilient and going through COVID like everybody else, but with all the extra hard things that they have on them, they're heroes too every day that they get up and just go to college. They're heroes every day that they just get up and keep doing the work that they need to do. Um, every kid in care. Yep. Absolutely. Thank you for that. Thank you for sure. coming on the podcast. Thank you for it having nice me. To. It was lovely. <laughs> it was lovely for me too. Thank you so much to Lisa for being on the podcast today and to Stephen Bluestein for audio production. We have a special guest next week, Shelby Forsythia. She's an author and a host of a podcast. We're going to talk about some books that she has found to be really helpful through her grief process. And so if you're a book reader, I think this will be a really interesting episode for you. I'm excited to talk to her and I'm excited to introduce her to all of you. So join us then. That's all for today. Good morning to all of you.